Well, good morning. Merry Christmas to you. My name is Luke Banner. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are visiting with us today, we are so glad that you are here. Um, please open your Bibles to Hebrews. Chapter 5 is where we'll kind of begin. But we're going to kind of float around a couple different places. So this week we're in our fourth week of our Advent series. And in this series we're considering the prophetic foreshadowing or foretelling of Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament. So far we've looked at the, e the descendant of Eve. We've looked at uh, Jesus being foretold to be a prophet like Moses. We've seen Jesus to be foreshadowed as a king like David. And today we're going to be talking about a, a priest like Melchizedek. And as we read in Genesis 14, this is a very short account from uh, Melchizedek. And Hebrews helps us out considerably here. Um, when Richard told me that I was going to be preaching on Melchizedek, I was like, Richard, have mercy. This, this is going to be like a 55-minute sermon. I mean, think about the people. Have compassion for the people. I mean, if the Apostle Paul put people to sleep and they fell out of windows and died, have mercy on our congregation. But uh, alas, here we are. So have, Merry Christmas to Mary and Merry Christmas to you in that. Um, thanks, Richard. Um, so we're going to consider the prophetic foreshadowing in Psalm 110, verse 4. We're really not even going to look at that passage, but I'm going to read it to you here. Psalm 110, 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110 looks forward to the type of Messiah that we should expect. But the book of Hebrews writes and looks back at Jesus in light of who he is and, and interprets this Melchizedek in light of who Jesus is. So with that, let's begin in prayer. Father, we come before you, um, certainly myself, wondering um, what, when will you come back? We have the assurance of promises throughout Scripture that you will do just that and you will bring your people to glory. We have an Ebenezer here at Christmas, a promise that you would bring a Savior into the world. And here we have, uh, looking back 2,000 years, we see that Christ did come. This morning we come to study Melchizedek. I pray that you give us uh, eyes to see your word. I pray that you give us eyes to see the gospel message and then it would transform our lives. I pray for those who are here today who are too comfortable, I pray that you would disrupt them with the gospel. And for those who are, in fact, disrupted, I pray that you would comfort them with the gospel message, the same message of Jesus Christ. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. A few years ago, I attended a beautiful worship service at an Episcopalian church. And even though high church liturgy is really not my first language, I was completely swept up in this service. And I was just enamored with the beauty and the processional and the smells and the bells and it was an incredibly moving experience for me. I was receiving the Lord's Supper, and I might have even had tears in my eyes, and there was actually a bishop presiding over the service. And the bishop comes to me with my hands held, and he gives me the bread and the wine, and he gives me simple words of encouragement and a simple prayer. But it seemed like there was something there. Later on, there was a reception following the service, and the bishop he, he knew exactly what he wanted to do, and he came and found me right by the cake. And that bishop said to me, Brother, why is it that when 
I gave you the elements. I felt my spirit go out to you. I was like, why is this guy talking? But I was like, well, if this guy's asking, I'm going to tell him. I was like, well, my marriage is crap. I'm totally stressed and I'm completely overwhelmed in life right now. And he was just like, well. And I think it was a little startling. I think it was a little surprising. But he said, brother, can we go in the back room and can we pray together? I said, yeah. And so as he lays his hands upon me and prays over me, what happened was this priest, this bishop, he took me to the Father. And I needed that because I had a sense of a disconnect with my wife. I had to disconnect with myself. I felt a disconnect with the Lord. And as I'm in here right now looking out across this room, I know that there are those of us in here who struggle with the same things. Feeling a disconnect from maybe ourselves, maybe our marriages, maybe from the Lord. And you need a priest to take you to the Lord. I've experienced that this week myself. Having the temptation to run and hide where due to my stress, I've allowed myself the stress to dictate how I speak to someone close to me and I've hurt them in the process. And that causes me to want to run and hide. And I need someone to remind me of the goodness of God. I need to be reminded. I need a priest to take me to the Lord. And that's exactly what the priesthood is for in Scripture. Our need for a priest is about the problem of sin and the disconnect that we have with the Lord due to our sin. You know, the most basic religious question is, how is man to be made right with God? That's the question that every single religion attempts to answer. But it's also a question that only Christianity can sufficiently answer. How can man be made right with God? Only Christianity offers an answer that accounts for God's justice and His holiness and deals with sin properly. So how can, be, how can man be right with God, especially a sinful man with a holy God? How can we be all right with God when we're in fact all wrong with God? That's a pretty big conundrum, isn't it? So the answer is that we need someone to take us to the Lord. We can't be all right with God because we're in complete opposition. We're told in Scripture that we're born in sin. I look at my daughter when she's eating dinner and she continually will throw her food and her sippy cup in the floor. I don't have to teach her how to be rebellious. She just does it. She's really good at it. And then I'll say something really stern like, don't throw your sippy cup in the floor. And it's it's comical in a sense because she doesn't really understand what's happening there, but she, she knows how to be rebellious just because that's, that's, that's how she's, she's born. She's just rebellious. And that's how we're born. We're born in sin and opposition. We're born in trespasses with the penalty of death awaiting us. So the question remains, how can we be right with God? How can we be made right with God? Well, the purpose of the priesthood. This is where they come in. They take us to God. Hebrews 5.1 says this, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is just a little overview of what's happening biblically with the priesthood. Okay, So a couple things to highlight. First is that a priest is taken from among men, so he can be the representative. And here we have Christmas. 
where Jesus, who ultimately is our true high priest, is born of a woman, of a virgin, so he can actually be part of us, so he can properly represent us. Also, we see that a priest is appointed by God for this work. He also acts on behalf of men in relation to God. And his calling, his actual work that he's called to do is to offer gifts and sacrifices. And all of this is directed for a purpose. Did you see the purpose at the end of verse 1? For sin. The purpose is to deal with sin. That's the objective of the priesthood. And it all boils down to mediation and atonement. This is how it happens. How did the priest actually deal with sin? They deal with sin through mediation and atonement. Mediators are people who go between people at odds, people at variance, people in total opposition. And that's exactly where we are with the Lord. We are in complete opposition to the Lord. We need a mediator. We have irreconcilable differences with God because He's holy and we are tainted with sin. And so we need a mediator. The need for a priest is really just the need for a mediator. A priest is called to represent man to God, act on his behalf, and we need a priest to take us to God because we can't get to God without a mediator. Are you understanding that? That we are completely separated. So how is the, the priest supposed to do this, though? Because he's drawn from among men. He's called from among men. How is a sinful priest from a sinful people supposed to do his job as a mediator when he himself needs a mediator? Atonement. Sacrifices. As sin divides, the atonement unites. As sin separates us from God, atonement, or how we are made right with God, is happening through sacrifices. This is about God's holiness and His justice. This is about how... He must punish sin because He's not only a loving Father, He's also a just judge. So He has to punish sin, otherwise He wouldn't be just. So we see that the need for a priest is really the need for a sacrifice because the priest has no means of mediation without a sacrifice to atone for sins. Let me illustrate this by talking about the book of Leviticus. If you haven't read the book of Leviticus in a little while, or maybe ever, go read Leviticus. Because it is an incredible book to describe in visual pictures God's holiness and what that looks like. It, it shows us so clearly what God's justice looks like and how He has to punish sin. In chapter 16, we have the Day of Atonement. This is where the high priests were called to annually atone for the sins of the people as well as themselves. And so what would happen is that the priest would symbolically lay upon an innocent animal his own sins, as well as the sins of the people, and he would kill that animal. Let me intensify that a little bit. To imagine going into the Holy of Holies where all the blood was sprinkled from the shed animals would have been a horrific picture. It would have been a horrific haunting picture that you would not be able to escape the memory of. It would, it would really be something that would probably bring in traumatic stress. This is what sin has to be paid with. Blood. And so, this picture helps us understand the role of the priesthood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
The only problem, though, is that this was an ineffective priesthood. The, the priesthood had inherent problems in it. That it, I was very careful to describe the acts of the priest as being symbolic because the, 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 the priest would offer sacrifices and that would symbolically atone for sins, but it wouldn't actually have atonement. It wouldn't actually accomplish what it was purposed for. So it was an ineffective priesthood. It was there because it was an ineffective sacrifice. So when we're talking about atonement and mediation in the priesthood, what we're really talking about is the need for a priest, the need for also a true sacrifice. Because the priest has no means of mediation without a sacrifice to atone for sins. So when we look at the priesthood, it's really kind of like a shadow versus a reality of the thing that it actually is a shadow of. When you think about your shadow, I have a shadow up here actually, a shadow really looks a lot like the thing it represents, doesn't it? It actually has the silhouette, so it's similar. Um, a shadow also kind of moves as you move. But when it's compared to the real thing, a shadow is nothing in comparison to the real thing. Your shadow is nothing like the real you. And Hebrews 10, 1-4 helps us understand exactly how this is relevant to our discussion. Hebrews 10, 1-4 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The whole Old Testament priesthood is a shadow. It looks similar to what it points towards, but it's merely a shadow. It was really futile in its efforts. I mean, it's kind of like mowing the grass. When you mow the grass, what happens? It immediately starts growing back. And in this Old Testament priesthood, as soon as the sins of the people were atoned for, the people did what? They started sinning again. And so it's this never-ending cycle of futility. So both the sacrifices and the priests point towards a sacrifice and a true priest who could take away sins. Remember, Psalm 110 promises a priest like this, a priest that we need. One that is so different that he's from a completely different category than the priesthood that we see throughout the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood. So that brings us to talking about the priesthood of Melchizedek. Mel Melchizedek is understood to be one of the more complicated uh, figures in Scripture, um, but it's really fairly simple, and I'm going to try to explain it to you in the most um, simple way I possibly can. Melchizedek is important because he comes from a different category um, in, in the Bible comparatively to the priests. Melchizedek is important because of the comparisons that are used to put him next to the, the, the Levitical priesthood as well as putting him next to Christ, the true priest. Okay? So in one case, Melchizedek completely overshadows the Levitical priesthood because he's far superior. And in the other case, he's compared to Jesus and he is therefore foreshadowing Jesus because he's greater than the, the one, but he's less than the other. 
Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to discuss how he overshadows and foreshadows, and I'm going to try to do that at the same time. So let's look at how that is played out in Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, 1 to 4 really helps us understand this. First, Melchizedek has an exalted dual office. So he's not just a priest, he's a king. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So what we see is that he was not only a priest, but he was also a king. So he completely overshadows the former priesthood, but he also foreshadows Christ because Christ had three offices, all of the biblical office. He was a priest, he was a king, but he was also a prophet. And not only that, but Jesus executes all of those offices perfectly with absolute authority. Think of it this way. Melchizedek is referred to as the king of a place called Salem. That's the, the future Jerusalem. And Jesus is referred to as the king of kings and the lord of lords. So he's nothing compared to Jesus. Now Melchizedek may be a priest of the Most High God, but he's ultimately effective, ineffective because he only has a symbolic atonement that he can offer. He only foreshadows Christ, who's the true priest, who can actually take away sins and offer us forgiveness. Jesus is also a prophet. Jesus not only spoke the word of God to us as a prophet would, but what else? He embodied the word of God. He was the flesh. He was the God-man. He was the word made flesh and dwelt among us. Also, Melchizedek has an exalted name. Look at verse 2. It says, And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So what we have happening there is these incredibly loaded statements, these words. Hebrew language is embedded with meaning. His actual name, Melech Zedek, means king of righteousness. And he's also king of a place called peace from the word shalom. And so these are incredibly significant titles for him because it means that he completely overshadows the Levitical priesthood. So he's so much far superior. But there's Jesus. He foreshadows Jesus. Jesus' name means God saves. What about the name Emmanuel? means God with us. What about Jesus being referred to as the Son of God? What about the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, Lamb of God, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the list goes on. Jesus Christ is so much far superior to Melchizedek that he's like a shadow. He has a truly exalted name. But Melchizedek is also having an appearance of a permanent priesthood. Look at verse 3 with me. It said, He, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So what's happening here is, as we just read in Genesis 14, this guy comes out of nowhere, totally random. He doesn't have any genealogy, and in the old in the old world, this was sort of the way that people presented the resume is, you're only as good as your greatest ancestor. This guy comes out of nowhere. Comes out of nowhere. No genealogy. And it also says that he doesn't have really a death narrative, so it seems like maybe his priesthood continues forever. But it doesn't. All of that overshadows the Levitical priesthood, but it really foreshadows Christ, who has an ultimate continued priesthood. As we just have heard from 
Psalm 110, we have a promise that God has sworn an oath and it, a double emphatic that He will not change His mind, that He will be a priest forever after this guy's order. And so Jesus' priesthood, we know, is forever. Notice how it says that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God and not the other way around. He resembles Jesus, not the other way around. Ultimately, we know this. Yes, Jesus did die. However, Jesus was also resurrected and ascended, and His priesthood continues forever because He lives bodily in human form in heaven. Jesus is also referred to as the Alpha and the Omega. That means that He is the beginning and the end. That means that His priesthood is forever, completely overshadowing Melchizedek. He also has, uh, Melchizedek is also told or, or said to have superiority. In verses 4 through 7, I'll just kind of highlight this for us. It says, See how great this man was, Melchizedek, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils of his battle. What's happening here is a sign of ultimate respect and submission. He's giving him a portion of the booty. And that is an ultimate sign of respect and submission. And Abraham is blessed by this man, Melchizedek, as well. And verse 7 tells us that it is without dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And so the logic that's being used here in Hebrews is explaining to us that Abraham, who all of the Hebrew people knew to be the greatest of them all, he was the greatest of the ancestors on their, on their resume, on their genealogy. Melchizedek is even better than him. And all of the priesthood, which is descended from Abraham, is subsumed in Abraham. And so therefore, Melchizedek is so much greater than all of that. But it only foreshadows Christ because he's so much greater than Melchizedek. I mean, remember, remember when the Jews in John 8 asked Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham? What did Jesus say? Before Abraham was, I am. That's ultimate superiority. That's claiming divinity. Ultimate superiority. Completely overshadowing Melchizedek. And so, another place, Melchizedek in Genesis 14, he goes and he feeds the, the army bread and wine to give them sustenance, to energize them. But Jesus feeds us with his flesh and blood. So he completely overshadows Melchizedek and how he operated as a priest. Now, if that wasn't enough to explain this comparison and make it abundantly clear that he really only foreshadows Christ and that Christ is completely superior, Hebrews 7 continues and it gives us a really clear comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek and shows us how Jesus has a perfect priesthood. So we're going to look at verses 23 through 28. First, Jesus has perfect permanence, or rather a priesthood that continues forever. Look at verses 23 and 24 with me. He says, The former priests were many, many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. The priesthood was broken because they constantly were dying. They couldn't actually continue their work. They couldn't actually do anything effective anyway. And so we have this reminder that Jesus has a priesthood that is forever, continues 
forever. God has sworn an oath and He will not change His mind. We know that this is true because Jesus is resurrected and He's at the Father's right hand. Jesus also has a perfect priesthood because of His perfect power. Look with me at verse 25. It says, Consequently, or because of this, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to Him, or draw near to God through Him. So Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. His priesthood is perfect because it's actually powerful. It's actually effective. It actually accomplishes the purpose of bringing us near to God. That's the point of the priesthood. And that's what Jesus can do because He's actually powerful. He's able to save. If we do it through Him, our mediator, we have access to the Father. Jesus also has a perfect priesthood because of His perfect intercession. Look at the second half of that verse in 25. It says, Since He always lives to make intercession for them. That's what He does. That's what He's doing right now. He's interceding for me as I preach. He's interceding for you right now. Jesus is constantly interceding for us. After that service that I went to and at the reception where the, the bishop prayed for me, this man took me to the Lord. But he did it in such a, a finite and trite way. He, he, he really did it in a way that is only a shadow of what Jesus does. Jesus is at the Father's right hand in His presence and He takes me, He takes you into that room with Him. So He's constantly interceding for us. So, Jesus' permanence, His power, and His intercession are all functions of His priesthood, but they're all based on His perfect obedience and His perfect sacrifice. Without those things, there would be no functions. There would be nothing that He would do for us. First, His perfect obedience. That's in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is one of us. He was born of the woman. That's what we're celebrating tomorrow at Christmas. But Jesus lived a perfect life, a sinless life. And what did He do? He actually earned merit with God. He earned righteousness. He earned favor with God. He was completely obedient, which allows Him to be a perfect priest because He has no need for a mediator. He is the mediator. But Jesus is also a perfect sacrifice. Look at verses 27 and 28. He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for His own sins and then for those of the people, since He did this once for all when He offered up Himself, for the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests. But the word of the oath, Psalm 110.4, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now remember, in Leviticus, in the Day of Atonement, in chapter 16 of Leviticus, this is all symbolic. These priests had no actual power. They were symbolically atoning for sin, but Jesus actually atones for our sin. Jesus actually removes our record of wrongs so that we have forgiveness of sins with the Father. He's actually done it. He's powerful and He's effective in doing it. So Jesus not He did not do this symbolically, but literally had His blood shed for our sins. In the same way that 
one of the high priests in Leviticus would lay his hand on the head of an animal, innocent, and then shed its blood by slitting its throat. Jesus does not take that sin upon himself figuratively, symbolically, but literally. And as he does that, he also gives us his right standing, his righteousness, so that we can have access to the Father, making us right with God. So that question, how does our religion account for our broken relationship? How are we to be made right with God? Christianity is the only religion that deals with this question sufficiently because it deals with God's justice and a punishment for sin and gives us right standing through the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. We need a perfect sacrifice and we need a perfect priest to take us to the Lord and that's exactly what Jesus did. So, I want to offer you a few takeaways here of application. Um, and first, I just want to say this. Everything that I've already said, I hope, is application. Because it's the gospel. The gospel is living application. Every day. But a couple takeaways would be this. First, if you are in Christ, you are not your sin. You are not your mistakes. You are not your shortcomings. That's not who you are. So some of you may be hiding and running, embarrassed of the life that you've lived recently, but that is not who you are. And there's freedom in the cross for those who believe this message because that is not who you are. You may be having an experience of a disconnect between yourself a disconnect with friends and family, maybe a disconnect with the Lord, but that is not who you are. You are not your sin. If you are in Christ, you're able to draw near to God through Christ because God sees you not in light of your sin, but in light of Christ, who is your identity. You are not your sin. Also, I want to encourage you to be known. I want to invite you to be known in your mess. I want to encourage you not to hide. Don't run away. Don't hide these things from the people of our congregation, the people of your workplace. If someone asks you how you're doing, don't say you're fine when your marriage is crap. Okay? Don't do it. Resist that temptation. Because why? That's not who you are. Your identity is in Christ who has right standing with the Lord and frees us from image management. We're all a mess. And... I've always thought that a cool name for a church might be Mosaic. Because a mosaic is a bunch of shattered pieces of glass and pottery that when it's arranged together, makes something beautiful. What if Christ Presbyterian was a mosaic? A bunch of shattered, broken pieces that all came together as the body and became something beautiful. I also want to invite you to rest this morning. I want to invite you to stop trying to make a name for yourself. Stop striving. I want to invite you to stop with all the performance and just rest. I'm as guilty as anybody else. Just rest. You are not your sin, which means you can be known because your true identity is His identity. And if that's true, you can rest. Merry Christmas. Christ has come.
Let's pray. Father, we come um, very thankful. Um, understanding how Melchizedek has overshadowed all that has come before and points us to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, a true priest who gives us access to the Father. Father, I pray that you would have this gospel message sink deep into our hearts and transform us and that it would be living application in our lives today and that we would long for you to come once again as you have already come as we celebrate Christmas. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray it. Amen.